Thanks, Ken. Well, I want to thank you uh, for your prayers and concerns for me over this past week. Trudy and I uh, were taking a beginning cross-country ski lesson uh, a week ago Friday, and uh, we learned something in, in uh, the course of that lesson, and, and it is this. They should teach you how to stop very early on in the lesson. Because uh, we were coming to the end of it, they had not yet told us how to stop, and so I'm in uh, the, the, the classic uh, style, and so I'm in a track. Well, to get out of the track, you know, to, to stop is really difficult, and so we're going down a slight hill, and uh, so there's a lady in front of me, and she's going down, and when she gets to the bottom of the hill, she just stops right there and just stays there. Come on, lady. And... Uh, it's, it's like it's a green light, you know, she's just staying there at the intersection. And so I'm coming down the hill, and, and I'm going a little uh, uh, faster uh, pace, and I look up, and I realize that there she is. And so I could have done one of two things. I could have killed her by hitting her, or I could have uh, bailed out, which I chose to do, fall, because I did not yet know how to stop. And so uh, the, the pain was fairly excruciating for the next 24 hours, and uh, now it is, it is, uh, in, I'm getting better uh, bit by bit each day, and so uh, I'm grateful for that. Uh, thank you, uh, Tim Gosweller, for preaching my message last weekend. I have to tell you, when I was preparing that message and I was putting my notes together, I was really surprised at the volume of notes I had for a short 10-minute message. And little did I know then that actually the volume of notes was not for my benefit, but it was for Tim's benefit when he preached that message. But it is to me just another story, is it not, of the all-sufficiency of God in providing for His people. And so, uh, thank you, Tim. Well, our study today is in Acts chapter 2. It is certainly uh, the most important chapter in this book. It is one of the most important in the New Testament as well as perhaps the entire Bible. Now, no text in Acts has received closer scrutiny than Acts chapter 2. Whole theologies and denominations have been built around what is contained in this chapter. Churches and denominations have split over their interpretation and application of these verses. And so today, I will not answer all the questions associated with this text, all right? I might stir up uh, a few questions, and maybe we will resolve a few as well. So um, uh, it's not going to be a verse-by-verse -verse explanation of the text, but rather uh, I'm going to give you uh, statements that I think summarize what is being taught here. And so we're going to divide Acts 2 into two sections. Verses 1 to 13 is going to be a description of the phenomena of Pentecost. And then beginning with verses 14 through 41, it's going to be the meaning of Pentecost. And so let's begin uh, by looking at verses 1 to 13. And by the way, a little bit later in the message, there's going to be uh, some... Uh, uh, verses that are not going to be on the screen, so I'd encourage you to have a Bible handy or your phone app to, to look at that because it's very, very poignant uh, when you come to that section. But Acts 2, 1 to 13, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. 
they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. It was Pentecost. They were coming to Jerusalem to celebrate one of the three annual pilgrimage feasts for uh, Jewish people. And so they were, they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Let me just stop there for a moment. It's interesting because even though they were all given the gift of being able to speak another language, they did so with a Galilean accent. That's what was interesting about this. They were able to tell that these were Galileans because of how they spoke. So it's interesting that as the Spirit of God came upon them, He empowered them, but He did not overpower their own uh, nature. Empower, but not overpower. I really think that's a significant point. I really enjoy the fact that it's, it's talks of them speaking you know, with a Galilean accent then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthenians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they have had too much wine. So let's stop there. I'm going to make four statements today about the phenomena of Pentecost based upon these verses and some other uh, chapters in the book of Acts. First of all, the phenomena are visible signs of God's presence with his people. Now, going back a bit, the disciples had been in the physical company of Jesus. They had witnessed his crucifixion. They, after his resurrection, they had been eyewitnesses that indeed he was alive. They had watched him ascend into heaven, and they remembered these words that not many days from now, I'm going to pour out my spirit upon you. And so they waited in Jerusalem, and the day of Pentecost came, and as the Spirit fell, he, he manifested His presence in them through these signs. So these signs, these phenomena, served as tangible evidence that the words of Jesus indeed had come to be true. The phenomena that is described here sounds like a violent wind and tongues of fire have a significant history in the Old Testament. When God visited His people in the Old Testament, oftentimes it was called a theophany, an appearance of God to His people. And these theophanies were oftentimes accompanied by this same phenomena, wind and fire, so that Moses... Elijah, Elisha, and Ezekiel would all testify to these very same phenomena. So it is significant that 
in Jerusalem and the temple that day, it is primarily Jews, although it also includes some converts to Judaism. They come and they see this phenomena. And of course, because they are Jews, they would be very familiar with the Old Testament theophanies. And so when they saw the wind and the fire in their minds, they're thinking, this is another appearance of God. And so they would have seen the significance of this as visible signs of the manifestation of God's presence. So statement number two, the phenomena that is described here should not be, nor is it a detailed description or a chronology for individual Christian experience. There are three reasons why what occurs in Acts 2 is not the normative Christian experience for every Christ follower. Here's the first reason. This is a unique event in history. And as such, it is unrepeatable. This event, Pentecost, stands alone as much as the Christmas story stands alone. You see, in the Christmas story, we have the incarnation of Jesus coming to the earth, taking on humanity in addition to his deity. Well, we know this, that in the Old Testament, the Spirit of God was active. He was at work, but there was no guarantee that he would remain with his people or in his people forever. But Pentecost now established a new era. And so as the incarnation of Jesus was unique, so Pentecost and the Spirit coming, living within His people was a unique event, unrepeatable. Second reason why this is not the normative Christian experience is that Luke uses various terms to describe the arrival of the Spirit. Filled, baptized, poured out, and received. He uses those words interchangeably, and in so doing, he does not permit us to create a, a technical or a precise definition of those words. And so the third reason is that in this book, Luke is going to record other unusual Holy Spirit phenomena stories. All right? They're contained in chapters 8 and 10 and 19. So there's actually four places in the book of Acts, 2, 8, 10, and 19, where there's some unusual Holy Spirit phenomena stories. These stories have some similarities, but they also have some dissimilarities. So when you look, however, at all four of these passages, it reveals this. There is no consistent, observable pattern in the sequence events such that you could say that this is the normal sequence for an individual believer. Here are some of the events that we understand are part of a person coming to Christ. First of all, there is the conviction of sin. Then there is the, the, the prayer by which a person comes to faith. And at that point, we say that's when a person receives the Spirit and then follows that is followed by water baptism. And so that's a general sequence that we use today. However, when you look at these four passages in the book of Acts, you're going to see that Luke mixed them all up. 
In fact, he, he flip-flops the, the order and the sequence. And, and, and so when you look at all four of them together, you say, well, well, which is it, Luke? And it's as though he's not really concerned about the proper sequence at that point. What he wants us to understand is that the Spirit has come to rest upon these people. And so it's impossible for us to, to see that this is a, a detailed description or a chronology for every person's individual Christian experience. Statement number three, the Holy Spirit phenomena stories in the book of Acts should be understood within the context of that particular story narrative. Now, when we read through the book of Acts, we discover this, that there are multiple times where we are told that there are people who came to faith. And there is no description of any phenomena that is uh, expressed in those conversions. So these four tend to be the exception rather than the norm. Uh, and, and in addition to that, we, we also realize that the phenomena then has to be understood within the context of the overall theme of the book, which we said is found in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. Paul or Peter, yeah, you know, Jesus said to, to the disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So laying that grid over the book, what we discover is this, that in Acts 2, the phenomena is primarily concerned with Jewish people. In Acts chapter 8, the phenomena is all related to Samaritans. In chapter 10, the phenomena is related to the Gentiles. And then in Acts 19, there's this very unusual story of people actually being disciples, not of Jesus, but of John the Baptist. And that's got its own set of issues because of this transition time. And so what happens is that we need to understand each of those unusual Holy Spirit stories within the context of that particular story. And finally, the, the fourth statement is this. The tongues that are spoken in Acts chapter 2, in my estimation, may be different than the tongues that are described elsewhere in the New Testament. So when you look at the tongues in Acts 2 and you compare that with the tongues that are in, in chapter 8 and 10 and 19 and 1 Corinthians, uh, you begin to realize that if you try to synthesize all that into one clear, concise description of the gift of tongues, it just can't be done. So, illustration. Very clear that in Acts chapter 2, the tongues were actual human language. There was no need for there to be any interpretation because they were hearing it, they are hearing a human language with their own ears. However, when you come to 1 Corinthians, it seems as though that this is a different type of tongue. It seems to be there's something ecstatic about it. And, and people would not understand it without an interpreter. And it was to only several were to speak, whereas in Acts 2, we've got all who are speaking on that day of Pentecost. So we just find it very, very difficult to, to, to merge our understanding of tongues into one clear, uh, concise um, explanation of the gift. So 
that's a little bit of the phenomenon. So hang with me as we uh, move into the meaning of Pentecost. It begins at verse 14 and all the way through uh, uh, verse 41. So as we read in uh, chapter 2, verse 17 through 21, uh, Peter is going to quote from uh, the book of Joel in the Old Testament. And this is what he says. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even upon my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. And so what we have in verses 17 and 18 seemed to be something that was happening on that day of Pentecost. But now we come to verse 19, you begin to say, okay, there's wonders in the heavens above, signs in the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. And you're beginning to wonder if you're transitioning from just the day of Pentecost. Now we're going forward into the latter days, and indeed that's the case. Look at verse 20. The sun is going to be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So uh, the meaning of Pentecost, I, I see three uh, that are in, in Peter's sermon. Here's the first uh, uh, meaning of Pentecost. It is proof that the last days or the latter days have begun. Uh, the quotation from Joel harmonizes with other Old Testament prophets who predicted and prophesied about the latter days. In a very real sense, in our Bibles, we have the Old Testament and we have the New Testament. Well, to a Hebrew, they thought of the former days and the latter days, the great divide, former and the latter days. And so these prophets who were living in the former days, they were speaking within that Old Testament covenant era. Yet they all predicted the arrival of a Messiah, King, Lord, and He would usher into a new messianic era. So those days, Peter is saying, had arrived. You see, the Messiah had come. That's King Jesus. He had come, and now the outpouring of the Spirit has said that, indeed, this is the latter days. And so the, the era of the messianic fulfillment that had been promised in the Old Testament had now begun. Those days had arrived. And this phenomena would have been the tangible proof that we're in these latter days. So verse 17 begins... Uh, with the beginning of these latter days, but verse 20 seems to look out towards the future uh, when it says about the great, great return of our Lord. So we use a term in um, doctrine called inaugurated eschatology. And the teaching of inaugurated eschatology is this. With the Messiah coming to the earth, and then the outpouring of the Spirit, we have now entered into the latter days, inaugurated eschatology, and yet we do not see during this era the full uh, the consummation of the latter days. We, we're seeing evidence of the kingdom at work, but obviously we are living in a time between its beginning and its full expression. 
so that today we see evidence of the kingdom of God. When, when Jesus reigns as king in a person's life, uh, when Jesus reigns as king in a church, we see evidence of the kingdom of God. When we see God do powerful things in a life, when we see the miracles that God can do, it is evidence that we are living in this messianic era. We're beginning to reverse the curse. And let's be honest, we'd like to see a whole lot more expression of that, would we not? And yet God has predicted that during this time of inaugurated eschatology, that while His kingdom is going to be present and it's going to be growing, that things in the world are, are going to be getting worse and worse. They're called the Great Tribulation, just preceding His second coming. And so we have the kingdom of God here, but we also have the kingdom of darkness, and they are in conflict. And, and Jesus has said that these two kingdoms are going to um, battle it out until He returns and He triumphantly destroys evil. So He's saying that the latter days are here. This phenomena is proof of that, but they have just begun. And, of course, we wait the final consummation of that. Number two, the presence of God's Spirit has now become the distinguishing mark of a Christian. So with the arrival of the Spirit at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is now the distinguishing mark of every believer. Uh, Paul in Romans 8 and verse 9 says this. I think we've got that verse on the screen, do we not? Thanks. Paul writes, If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. So it's just very, very clear that when a person prays a prayer to give their lives to Jesus. It is the Holy Spirit that comes to live inside that person. If a person does not have the Spirit of Christ within them, they are not a believer. Paul builds upon that in 1 Corinthians 12. And in verses 12 and 13, he, he, he talks about mem being members of the body of Christ. Not church membership, but a member of the body of Christ. And in this uh, this section, he also talks about one of the terms that can be rather controversial within a church. This is what Paul says. The body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts. And though all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by or in or through one spirit. We were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free. And we were all given the one spirit to drink. So, Paul is then talking about this, this concept of being baptized into the Spirit in the context of, of um, being a member of the body of Christ. And so the question is this, when is the baptism of the Spirit occurring according to Paul in this passage? So, three questions. When do we become members of the body of Christ? At conversion. Second question, when are we given the one spirit? That also is at conversion because Paul has already said that without the spirit of God, people are not 
Christians. And the third question is, when do we begin to drink of the Spirit? Once again, that is at conversion. So three times, there's three references to different things that happen, and each time the response to those questions is that all of this occurs at conversion. So I, I want to be very, very clear to you today that we need to understand that spirit baptism is something that occurs at conversion. When you became a Christian, you were baptized in the Spirit. Now, it's also true in the book of Acts that there's multiple places where there's reference to the filling of the Spirit. So-and-so was filled with the Spirit. So-and-so full of the Spirit. And so this is something that is very, very significant within the theology of Acts as well as Paul in Ephesians 5 where he says, do not get drunk with wine, but rather be filled with the Spirit. So while the Spirit baptism is a one-time experience that occurs at conversion, the Spirit's filling, however, is a repeated, and listen very carefully, sometimes a profound experience in that person's life. So, there are some people, I've had a few of those experiences, that have had such a profound experience with the Spirit of God that it has changed their lives. It, it, it has been a game changer in their understanding of God. Their relationship with God, their ability to be intimate with the Father has been so enhanced by a, a, a filling of the Spirit that has lingered in a way and has brought them to a new place in their spiritual life. Listen to me. I affirm that experience. I affirm that. If that's been your experience, I affirm. If it's, if it's bringing you closer to Christ, wonderful, wonderful. I just simply ask this. Please do not refer to it as baptism in the Spirit because I want to be theologically and doctrinally accurate. The baptism of the Spirit occurs at conversion, but we are continually filled. And sometimes those fillings will involve incredibly profound experiences that you have that continue to this day in your spiritual walk. So the third statement is this. The meaning of Pentecost is ultimately it is a call to consider Jesus. Verses 22 through verse 36, Peter preaches his first sermon uh, under the filling of the Spirit. And, of course, we know this from, the, from John's gospel, that the Spirit points people to Jesus. And so Peter, as he is filled with the Spirit now, he indeed begins to preach. And I tell you what, this is a wonderful, wonderful message he preaches under the control of the Spirit. He starts out very, very simply in verse 22. He says, men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man. And so he says, you know, Jesus of Nazareth was, was a real historical figure. He was a real man. But he was also an extraordinary man. He continues, he was accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. But he says, you put him to death. You crucified him, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold upon him. 
And so he's moving from this historical figure to an extraordinary man, crucified, resurrected. Even King David acknowledges that, uh, that uh, and he, he predicted the resurrection of Jesus. And so in verse 32, uh, Peter continues, and God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of that fact. Now exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father. This is a very intriguing little nuance in this text. So the Father has given to the Son, who is seated at his right hand, the Holy Spirit, and it was Jesus who then sent the promised spirit to us. So it's like there was a little bit of a handoff from the Father to the Son who then sent the Spirit to the earth. And as a result of that, Peter ends so magnificently in verse 36. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Christ. He starts with the Jesus of Nazareth, and he ends with King Jesus. That's what the Spirit does. The Spirit points us to King Jesus. I want to play a video, just a short little video here, from a, a brother in Christ. His name is S.M. Lockridge, Shadrach Meshach Lockridge. With a name like that, you need to know he's, a, he's an African-American. And it's just a wonderful, wonderful video entitled, that's my king. Let's look at it. The Bible says my king is the king of the Jews. He's a king of Israel. He's a king of righteousness. He's a king of the ages. He's a king of heaven. He's a king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder do you know him. My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient Savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleans the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he purifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's a key to knowledge. He's a wellspring of wisdom. He's a doorway of deliverance. He's a pathway of peace. He's a roadway of righteousness. He's a highway of holiness. He's a gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his life is massive. 
king that's your king that's powerful isn't it not do you know him do you know him maybe the spirit of god is just brooding over your heart today he's pressing into you and he's saying do you know jesus do you know this king don't resist him anymore that's the voice of the spirit i want you to know that you can trust the voice of the spirit calling you to consider what Jesus has done for you and wanting you to give your life to him. Let's pray together, shall we? Lord Jesus, all that you are and all that you want to be in our lives is just beyond our wildest dreams. We thank you today that as the Spirit of God works in our hearts, that he leads us to understand this wonderful King, that, that we can deeply love King Jesus, and we can have an, an intimate relationship with our Heavenly Father, the God of the universe, who is called Daddy, because the third person of the Trinity lives inside us. God, we could have never, ever contemplated something as deeply meaningful as this. And we thank you today for Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I pray that, God, as we leave this sanctuary today, that, God, there would be a, a, a confidence within our spirit, knowing that you are king, that we're part of your kingdom, that your kingdom will prevail, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against what you're doing. And so, Lord, may there be within us a godly and quiet confidence, a security because your spirit lives within us and gives us the power to live for you. And so it is in the strong name of Jesus, the tender ministry of the spirit, in the name of almighty God, that we pray these things. Amen and amen. And if you'd like to talk further about your relationship with Christ, I'd love to do that. There's a prayer room where you could just meditate or someone pray with you there. But please don't leave if there's still business that you need to do with God. Thanks for being with us today. You are dismissed.